0: Hi, everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 4th, 2019. So welcome to the first official episode of this podcast here at our new home at Substack. Uh, I am very pleased for this first episode to welcome to the show or welcome back to the show, depending on your perspective. Alex Thurston. Uh, Alex is a professor at Miami University of Ohio who specializes in the Sahel region of Africa, uh, in particular Mali and Nigeria. Uh, He has been on this podcast twice before, but that was at Patreon. Uh, so technically this is his first time on the show here at Substack, uh, or it could be his third time on the show. Like I said, depending on your perspective, uh, I have uploaded, uh, Alex's two previous episodes, uh, and they're now On the site, on the Substack site, fx.substack.com, you can find them in the archive. That's probably the easiest way to do it. They're open to the public. Uh, The archive you can find if you go on the front page of uh, the, the site, kind of at the top right, there's a little carrot. Indicating you know if you click on it or uh, hit it, uh, a menu will drop down, and sure enough, it will. Uh, and one of your choices will be archive, very easily labeled there. And just click on that, uh, and that will take you to a list of everything I've posted and uh, I moved. I've started moving some stuff from other places here to Substack. So uh, and as I say, two of those things that I've moved are Alex's previous uh, appearances on this podcast. Uh, so. Alex is, uh, as I say, he's uh, he studies the Sahel, he studies Mali and Nigeria. He's written two books. One, Salafism in Nigeria, Islam Preaching and Politics, uh, which was published in 2016. Uh, and another, Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement, which was published in 2017. Uh, I've asked him to come back on the show mostly to talk about uh, the wave of communal violence that seems to be sweeping across uh, West Africa at the moment, mostly involving the Fulani. Uh, so we're going to talk about who the Fulani are. Uh, what their history is and why they seem to be getting mixed up in so much kind of, uh, as I say, communal violence with other ethnic groups in both Mali and Nigeria, uh, and how that violence interacts with, the other big problem of the Sahel in terms of uh, violence, which is, of course, uh, Islamist extremism. Uh, so we'll be talking about that. Uh, if time permits, I'm going to ask him for a little update on how the uh, two Boko Harams or ISIS in West Africa uh, and Boko Haram uh, are doing these days. Uh, and uh, that I think will be more than enough uh, to get us through an episode. Uh, so with that, I'm going to get Alex on the phone and we will start. Start the interview okay. I am joined by Alex Thurston uh, from Miami University of Ohio. Alex, thank you once again for being on the show, and thanks for being my first guest here at Substack on the new version of the show. I guess. Thanks a lot for
1: having me back.
0: Uh, so Alex, I wanted to talk to you actually. When I initially invited you to come on, I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, like an update on what's been going on with Boko Haram and the the re-election of Muhammadu Buhari in Nigeria. And if time permits, I'd still like to talk about some of that stuff. But it seems like the big story going on right now in uh, the Sahel is uh, the ongoing communal violence Uh, that's kind of sweeping across the the region, in Nigeria and Mali in particular, Uh, most of it involving uh, the Fulani. Uh, There was just, you know, just like... Uh, I don't even think it was two weeks ago, just uh, less than two weeks ago, there was a, a, a massacre of a, in a Fulani village in central Mali, uh, something like 130 people or more were killed. Uh, the, the violence that's gone on between mostly Fulani herders and uh, farming communities across central Nigeria, I think the uh, evidence or the, the researchers found that the the death toll from that violence has exceeded the the death toll that's been caused in the, the or the of the the conflict with Boko Haram uh, or I guess the the two Boko Harams if you want to be technical uh, um, and so I I kind of changed directions here and I wanted to ask you uh, to to talk us through what's going on. And first, maybe um, give us a little background on the Fulani, who they are, uh, whether, you know, were they, are they indigenous to the region? Did they come from somewhere else, you know, centuries ago? Uh, Just kind of give us a little background on that that community.
1: Sure. I mean, I I definitely consider them indigenous to the region. I mean, if you go into you know, colonial sources and oral histories and so forth, you find kind of, you know, legendary and quasi-legendary accounts of them coming from elsewhere, but, you know, definitely, you know, they've been in the region for, you know, centuries and centuries. So, um, you know, they're, they're as, as indigenous as almost anyone else. Um, you know, they're known for being, uh, you know, nomadic pastoralists, um, they're, you know, very often a significant minority in the countries where they live, you know, um, they're, so they're, you know, sometimes seen as, even though they've been there for a long time, they're sometimes seen as, as you know, outsiders by, by other ethnic groups in those countries. Um, they've been affected by all kinds of, you know, developments in recent decades concerning, you know, land use, and climate change, and so forth, and and some of that has pushed them and their, you know, animals, their cattle in particular, into new areas, and that in turn has has caused some of these, or contributed to some of these intercommunal conflicts. Um, They've also been, you know, now increasingly accused of being, you know, jihadists, kind of, as, as, as a group, and there's been you know, in in various places, a kind of, you know, particularly in Mali, a kind of a collective punishment of the Fulani, you know, by uh, other ethnic militias and and also by state security forces. And so a really unfortunate kind of cycle has taken hold where, yeah, you know, a minority of of Fulani have joined certain jihadist groups in Mali, you know, uh, and Burkina Faso and so forth. Um, but then the Fulani as a whole experience this collective punishment, which just then leads, leads to a cycle of, you know, reprisals and, and deepens the whole uh, kind of nightmarish dynamic of, of intercommunal conflict.
0: So, what was? I mean, I kind of kind of want to go back, um, you know, a little bit to to get some understanding of uh who the fulani are and and what was their interaction with uh sort of the colonial period like i mean i i know there was a uh some kind of an empire right in in west africa a a caliphate i think uh that uh, i was kind of heavily fulani and they kind of stretched across Uh, parts of Mali, parts of, uh, I think, Niger and Nigeria. Um, And then that was... Uh, done away with as so many things were by uh, British colonial <laughs> forces or colonial authorities, uh, and then the you know the region was sort of formed into the the eventually into the countries that um, we now you know see there today uh, somewhat artificially. Everybody knows the whole kind of straight line border theory and uh, you know et cetera. Uh, uh, but uh, you know what was what kind of damage. Uh, did uh, colonization do to the Fulani? Did it, you know, split in in sort of splitting them up across these different uh, territories and, you know, kind of, um, you know, does, is that something that's, like, we're still seeing the effects of that kind of work themselves out?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot to think about there. One, I mean, I guess one place to start would be that there were these, leaders of, of what they called jihads, especially in the 19th century, who were ethnically Fulani. Um, and so two main, you know, outcomes of that were, were what was called the Sokoto Caliphate in, in what's now northern Nigeria and, and surrounding areas, and then the Empire of Messina in, in central Mali. And um, and, and, you know, both of those were, you know, eventually in conflict or, or were taken over by, by colonial forces, you know, British and French. Um, the British, I think, had a complicated relationship with the Fulani because they, you know, on the one hand fought with, with the Sokoto Caliphate and conquered it, but on the other hand, they, they sometimes talked about the Fulani as though they were sort of more evolved or more quote-unquote civilized than, than other peoples, And British, uh, the British evolved the system of what they called indirect rule in northern Nigeria, ruling through basically hereditary Muslim rulers, um, many of whom were ethnically Fulani. So, you know, even in a space of, of, you know, a couple of years in the early 20th century, the British went from being, you know, enemies of the Sokoto Caliphate to, to working with, with kind of the, the remnants of the Caliphate, um, to administer Northern Nigeria, um, the colonial period though, also had a lot of different effects on, on pastoralists. I mean, and including changing kind of notions of, um, you know, who would administer pastures and, and what ownership of the land meant. And one aspect of the conflict in Mali is not just the conflict between the Fulani and um, other ethnic groups, but also intra-Fulani conflicts about the management of of land and pastures um and kind of post-colonial and and colonial government sorry colonial and post-colonial governments um ended up sort of entrenching a system of hereditary management of pastures which which left a lot of sort of you know ordinary herders um paying sometimes you know more than they thought was fair and so again part of the conflict in central mali today involves involves this intra-fulani conflict and and uh, people assassinating the kind of hereditary managers of pastures. So, I mean, basically, colonialism had, had all kinds of, you know, multifaceted effects, um, elevating the Fulani in, in some areas, but then also um, setting the stage for some of the conflict today. And I should add, to this kind of idea that, that the Fulani, you know, were, were these 19th-century jihadists, has kind of fed into some of the fears on the part of other groups you know of of who the Fulani are, and, and has has fed into some of this collective punishment of of the Fulani. Um, you know, very unfairly. I mean, I should underscore because um, it's a minority of them who are involved in, in actual jihadism.
0: Well, it's. I mean, yeah. I want to, and I want to ask you about that uh, in more detail in a in a few minutes. It's it seems like sort of a a, a chicken and egg problem where. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, some portion of the Fulani have been uh, kind of incorporated into to these extremist groups. Uh, and so that's causing a f- general fear about the Fulani uh, kind of as a whole. Uh, but on the other hand, that fear, which leads to you know communal violence and reprisals, and uh, it seems to be driving, maybe is driving, you know, some of the Falani into the arms of these extremist groups. They're at least using it as sort of a recruitment tool. So I I, you know, I do want to ask you to kind of unpack that uh, here in a in a minute. Um, but the what I might what I wanted to ask next is sort of um, can is it fair to um, talk about this these violent, you know, clashes between communities that are going on uh, in Nigeria, in Mali, uh, even in Burkina Faso, well, you know, I'll ask you, about, we'll talk about that I guess uh, also in a, in a minute here. Uh, um, how much of those clashes are due to sort of specifically local, Uh, conflicts versus some kind of a regional pattern, uh, you know, uh, where there are uh, commonalities between uh, what's happening in, in, uh, let's say, Mali and what's happening in Nigeria.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely see it as as much more locally driven. I mean, the commonalities are there, but I think the commonalities are fairly sort of generic, right? I mean, you know, tensions between pastoralists and, and herders, this dynamic of what analysts sometimes call, like, the ethnicization of the conflict, where the conflict is not necessarily ethnic to begin with, but then gets ethnicized because of ethnic fault lines that, that widen during the conflict. I mean, I think those are some shared dynamics, but I also do think that, um, you know, the, the dynamics are more local. And, and I think this, I think history kind of demonstrates that. I mean... You know, a lot of the kind of intercommunal conflicts in, in Nigeria are traced back to, um, you know, the early 1990s, to specific changes that Nigerian authorities made in, in the structure of local governments and, and the kind of competition for power that that could touch off. Um, you know, in Mali, I mean, the tensions that, that have erupted in central Mali were, were building from the colonial period or even from the 19th century, but it took specific events. It took, in particular, the the uprising in northern Mali in 2012, and then it took some of the Malian military's behavior in central Mali, you know, after that uprising in the north, it took specific events to kind of really, you know, trigger the those tensions and, and turn them into the kind of, you know, severe intercommunal violence that we see now. And in fact, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of danger in um, you know, conflating uh, or, or regionalizing some of these trends. I mean, I think one danger is that it could lead to, to a kind of uh, an ethnic profiling of, of Fulani elsewhere, you know, even in, in countries beyond Mali and Nigeria. And then I think, I mean, some of this is deeply interwoven with just politics in general. I mean, the, the, um, the president of Nigeria, Muhammadu Buhari, is ethnically Fulani, and so, you know, some of the accusations about Fulani violence are, are in fact, you know, different uh, Nigerian politicians' maneuvers to, to try to, you know, implicate the president in some of the violence. And, and, and you know, Buhari um, merits criticism on, on a lot of different, you know, grounds, but, but I mean, uh, I, I definitely don't think he, like, pulls the strings with the conflict there involving the Fulani, so, I mean... I think, um, you know, it's the atmosphere around these questions is, is so politicized. It becomes It becomes even sort of hard to, to sift through all that. Sometimes,
0: are there? Well, okay. Basically, uh, is there a climate change component to this that that does kind of cut across the region? I think we, we've talked about. Uh, the the Fulani kind of or the, uh, I guess, I, I, the farmer herder conflict uh, in Nigeria. And, and I think you know, one of the, the causes we talked about was sort of uh, climate change kind of pushing these groups into closer contact with one another, which inevitably because farmers and herders can't share the same space very productively most of the time, unless it's very uh, that re- interaction is very heavily regulated um you know that's that's been one of the drivers of uh, the increase in violence there is is can can you say the same uh in Mali like is there something like that going on that's kind of common across the region
1: yeah i think so and if i was going to i mean if i was going to point to to any regional commonality i would i would point to i would point to that i would point to um to climate change and i think I mean, even there, though, I would be a touch cautious because the Fulani are in, like, many, many different countries, right? And so I think probably we could find, like, latent tensions in, in countries across the region. But then I, I do think it takes, like, these specific political events to to turn them into, you know, systemic violent conflict. But, yeah, I mean, maybe in some sense the outlook for the future is, is grim, right? Because I think... Um, you know, if there are latent tensions in, in other countries as well, then, then we could see the spread of these kind of conflicts. Um, and maybe the other, you know, maybe another regional or global trend to point to is, is the proliferation of small arms in the world, you know, and and uh, the way that that leads to just deadlier forms of violence.
0: Well, I mean, as an American, I certainly wouldn't know anything about that. Yeah, yeah. That's... Um, <laughs> All right, let's move on. No, we don't want to demonize the guns here.
1: Yeah, and America <laughs> has no responsibility, obviously, for the proliferation of small arms in the world either.
0: Obviously. I mean, we're we're very responsible about our weapons. Uh, um, talk about, I mean, you, you kind of hinted at this already, but talk about uh, the differences in the way that... Uh, the Fulani community is treated in Mali versus Nigeria. I mean, as you said, uh, Mohamedou Buhari is Fulani. He is president of Nigeria. So, uh, you know, there's uh, a different kind of uh, relationship that the Fulani have to power in Nigeria uh, than in Mali, where, uh, you know, I think you've you've noted there's a lot of, um, you know, they're not just being kind of, uh attacked by uh, surrounding you know other surrounding kind of ethnic groups they're also facing uh, a fair amount of official uh kind of state sanctioned uh, uh persecution
1: yeah i mean i think i think there are some real differences there in sort of the social status i mean you know for one thing i mean i think it can be i think it can be a bit simplistic, but, but in, in Nigeria, I mean, the Fulani are very interwoven with with the Hausa ethnic group, you know, and even to the extent that a lot of researchers talk about the Hausa Fulani as a hyphenated identity. I think that can be exaggerated sometimes, but it is the case that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the hereditary Muslim rulers in, in Nigeria are, you know, they would self-identify as Fulani, but they might not speak full-day the, the Fulani language. They might, you know, their native language might be Hausa. Um, and then you do, but you do at the very least have this kind of like Fulani elite in the north um, and, and, you know, figures who are nationally visible, I think to a greater extent, I'd have to think about it more, but I, I think definitely to a greater extent than, than Mali. I mean, in Mali definitely you have like prominent Fulani politicians, there's a um, you know, former president of the National Assembly, there's, it's not like the Fulani have been excluded completely from Malian politics, but I do think they're more visible in the Nigerian elite than they are in the Malian elite. Um, and I should say, too, but there's also, like, class dynamics in Nigeria. I mean, there's a huge difference, obviously, between, you know, Muhammadu Buhari and the Sultan of Sokoto on the one hand, and then sort of your, like, you know, uh, 20-year-old, Fulani pastoralist on, on the other, right? So I think, I mean, definitely like class dynamics cut across um, the Fulani and, and, and that, that can be the case in, in Mali too, you know, and, and some um, really important research, you know, coming out of Mali has looked at issues of, you know, even slavery and, and you know, former slavery within, within the, you know, Fulani milieu there. So it, it can even the Fulani can be very internally stratified.
0: And okay, so and now you know. Talk a little more about how this violence, which I think um, you know, we can we can and should agree, uh, is a separate, uh, separate problem, a separate issue from the problem of uh, Islamist extremism in the region, uh, but interfaces with it on a, a number of levels one of them obviously being you know as you've already mentioned the the sort of demonization of the Fulani which then contributes to violence uh, and the other on the other side of that there's the um the ways that I think Al-Qaeda in particular um especially in Mali has used uh, these kind of localized grievances and conflicts, uh, as a way in to, to appeal to young Fulani men and, and try to recruit them into the fold. Talk about those, uh, aspects.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the way you put it a few minutes ago about, about a chicken and egg problem is, is really right. I mean, and just to reiterate what you said, I mean, you know, you have, you have some Fulani involved in jihadism, which then leads to this accusation by others against the community as a whole, and then collective punishment directed against the Fulani, which can then inadvertently push more of them to, to join, you know, jihadist outfits. And, I mean, maybe another point to make is, is I think sometimes the, um, the identity of the perpetrators of violence in central Mali, are, their identity is not always clear to everyone. So even some, you know, there are bandits, there are uh, unclaimed or ambiguous incidents, and some of that too gets blamed on, on you know, so-called Fulani jihadists, which then can can make things even worse. Um, and I do, I, I mean, yeah, I agree as well with with what you were saying then um, just a minute ago about uh, how you know Al Qaeda. Or I wouldn't locate sort of the agency as much with global Al Qaeda as I would with kind of the al-Qaeda affiliate in, in Mali and the Sahara, but I think they have been, you know, skilled at um, trying to tap into these, you know, grievances and, and issues, particularly in central Mali. And I think they've cultivated some ambiguity, too. I mean, the, the, the kind of main jihadist leader in, in central Mali, Amadou Kufa, who's part of the, um, you know, formal hierarchy of, of al-Qaeda and what's called al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or AQIM, um... You know, he, he's a little bit, um, you know, he switches back and forth, basically. You know, sometimes he will, most of the time, he'll talk in the mode of a jihadist leader. You know, sometimes he'll, he'll you know, insist that, that his sort of coalition of fighters is multi-ethnic. You know, but then at times he, he, he sounds, and I think deliberately tries to sound like a Fulani ethnic leader. Um, and I think he kind of strategically and ambiguously switches between those two modes um, to try to appeal to a wide swath of people.
0: I know uh, Burkina Faso is not your your area, uh, but I wonder if you could kind of, a, a, in a in a you know, in a very basic uh, level, talk about some of. What I think is is you know a lot of spillover, uh, what seems to be a lot of spillover uh, of both sort of th- this kind of communal violence and um, Islamist extremist violence. Uh, mostly, it seems from Mali, maybe some from Niger, uh, but it, it's it seems to be. Uh, increasing, you know, alarmingly uh, in Burkina Faso, and and uh, you know, just the la- over the last few days, I think there there was a report that, um, you know, sixty people were killed yeah. in northern Burkina Faso in uh, what seems to be just kind of an intercommunal conflict. You know, a religious leader. And his family were killed, and then there were reprisal attacks, and then, it, you know, things kind of spiraled from there. Um, but, uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I, I know, you know, again, this is, uh, you know, we're just trying to kind of do a quick overview of this but you know how much of this is kind of homegrown to Burkina Faso how much of it is coming into the country from outside and kind of becoming you know are, are some of these conflicts becoming uh, bigger regional issues than than uh, maybe they have been previously
1: yeah I mean I think I think you know the trend line in, in Burkina Faso is, is just as bad as, as the trend line in Mali if not it's not far worse I mean and you get some of the same dynamics taking hold and I, th- I think it I think there's both you know substantial spillover from Mali and then you know a lot of of you know local dynamics and, and there is this you know uh, at least somewhat if not mostly homegrown you know Burkinaabe jihadist movement called al-islam or, or the, the supporters or defenders of Islam um, and I think in in you know northern Burkina Faso, and then now more in eastern Burkina Faso, and now people are even talking about southwestern Burkina Faso, um, you know, you've gotten some of the dynamics that you've gotten in Mali, so, um, you know, uh, some, again, a minority of the Fulani joining a jihadist movement, but then uh, collective punishment of the Fulani by uh, state security forces and by, you know, other ethnic groups, uh, which then you know, feeds into the kind of chicken and egg problem that that you mentioned before. On top of that, you get similar issues of of banditry and then this kind of atmosphere where people don't always know who's committing acts of violence, which then can feed back into, you know, the overall climate of of kind of extreme uh, hostility by any group against against other groups. so, yeah, I mean, I think the situation is, is very bad. And then on top of that, you get kind of the macro political context in, in Burkina Faso where you had the popular revolution of, of 2014, um, you know, overthrowing the longtime dictator, Blaise Campore, and, and kind of the after effects of that. You know, and, and analysts have have approached that in different ways. You know, some have said that, you know, basically the new, the new government that came in, in in late 2015 is just You know, not as experienced and and having difficulty confronting this kind of multifaceted crisis, and and you just had basically the whole cabinet resign in in January and get replaced. Um, Other, you know, voices go further and say, you know, that possibly there was even some kind of collusive arrangement in place between Kampore and al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb or AQIM. I mean, advisors to, to campoore played you know roles in in negotiating the the release of European hostages at various points before campoorre fell in 2014 and and you know even the current president has sort of uh, floated the idea that, that that there was wider collaboration or some kind of wider tacit agreement between campore's government and and the you know the jihadists so um it's all really sort of murky to to think about, but but there's kind of interaction between the macro context and the micro context in Burkina, and then between what's going on in northern Burkina and what's going on in central Mali.
0: That that actually segues nicely into my next question, which is oh, okay. uh, what what are the governments of the region? Doing specifically about this kind of communal violence to try and stop it, or uh, you know, what are they doing that's making it worse? If they, you know, if that's the case, um, Buhari uh, was just reelected a couple of months ago, which. Given that he was elected in the first place to deal with Boko Haram and improve the Nigerian economy, and he went 0 for 2, I found that a, a little surprising. I mean, I know incumbency has its advantages, but uh, he, I, I thought he would have a have more of a fight on his hands. Uh, um, so you know, Buhari's still in place in in Nigeria. He already had his hands full with. Uh, you know th- these other problems, and now you know there's this uh, you know developing kind of growing farmer herder conflict to deal with. Um, we've talked we talked in a, a the I think the last time you were on we talked about Mali. We talked about the political dysfunction in Mali and how that's contributed to uh, the rise of Al Qaeda and sort of destabilization there. Uh, but how how are the governments? uh, of the region, if they are at all, uh, trying to, to, to deal with this kind of phenomenon of communal violence.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think in Mali in particular, and then, and then in Burkina Faso as well, um, you know, I I think the government needs to shoulder some significant blame for the state of affairs. I mean, particularly the, the, the behavior of security forces in this issue of collective punishment, and then and then maybe in Mali in particular, you know, the issue of, of um, state support, you know, um, on whatever level for, for different um, communal militias and, and different factions across the country. Um, I think I think particularly the Malian state, has, has contributed to this state of affairs, um, and, and I'm definitely not the only sort of analyst saying that. Um, You know, I think beyond that, I mean, in terms of things that they've done, you know, proactively to try to reduce violence, you have this this G five Sahel Joint Force, you know, which includes Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad. Um, that's a force, you know, and that has a ton of uh, rhetorical and, and material support from the French government, and, and I think the French government in particular hopes that it'll be um, a stabilizing force in the region, and that and that France you know, and, and a way for France to, to eventually pull back. I think, though, that there's been a lot more kind of hype than, than uh, you know, actual promises fulfilled with the with B5-Sahel joint force. Um, then you see governments, you know, or you see presidents, you know, uh, shuffling their cabinets and, and so forth. I mean, in Mali, the you know, the new... Um, or the newish prime minister who came in, you know, very late 2017 has been credited with sort of, uh, you know, being a savvier figure than some of his predecessors before him. Mali had gone through a lot of different prime ministers and relatively rapid succession. Um, but you know, a lot of the problems are sort of, um, deeply, deeply structural basically. And, and, are going to take more than, than you know, cabinet reshuffles or, or, you know, these regional military forces to address. Um, I think in particular, you know, a lot of people in, in central Mali or, or a lot of researchers looking at the conflict, you know, have said that the the return of the state is really what's necessary, but then the state would have to return, you know, to, to central Mali or to northern Burkina Faso or whatever in a way that people thought it's fair and just and, and some of the, you know, drivers of the conflict have been perceptions that, you know, uh, judges take bribes, that, you know, soldiers and, and municipal officials are unfair and corrupt. And so, you know, those are problems that are going to be extremely difficult to resolve. In Nigeria, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I agree with what you said, that that Buhari's kind of 0 for 2. Um, he made, you know, some moves very early in his presidency, you know, appointing, a uh, chief of army staff who was from northeastern Nigeria and so forth. Um, but I think the sort of symbolism and even whatever positive effects of those have, you know, have not, um, whatever political capital he got from that is probably gone. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think I mean, the, the intercommunal, you know, conflicts in, in Nigeria are going to be tremendously difficult for him to resolve. And even, you know, other conflicts popped up during his presidency, I mean, in in the northwest now, there's substantial problems with banditry and so forth. Um, you know, Nigeria has been through um, obviously terrible conflicts in the past, and so Buhari's record is not necessarily worse than that of various predecessors. But yeah, I mean, he he hasn't been able to rein in some of this violence.
0: So, uh, well, on, on that on that note, <laughs> I wanted to to move on to talking about. Uh, Boko Haram Uh, uh, there was a piece I don't know if you saw it um, a couple of days ago in Foreign Policy uh, that uh, the the title was ISIS's West African offshoot is following al-Qaeda's rules for success Uh, Uh and the argument here being that Um, You know, I mean, well, the background obviously is Boko Haram split up in in 2016. ISIS, uh, the parent organization, kind of dispossessed uh, the longtime leader of Boko Haram, Abu Bakr Shakao. Mostly it seems because uh, they thought he was being too violent uh, toward other Muslims, which is often the complaint uh, that Al Qaeda levels at ISIS. So it was a little weird that, like, I mean, it's a little, uh, kind of remarkable to see ISIS, uh, you know, looking at Shik- Abu Bakr Shikawa and saying, Ooh, wow, that's a little too much, um, for us. Uh, but they, you know, they, they gave the organization to, uh, uh, to, uh, um, al-Barnawi, Abu, uh, Musab al-Barnawi, is that, that, is yeah, that right? Yeah. Um, and uh but you know abu Bakr Shikha said i'm not going anywhere and the the group split and now uh you know there are Two Boko Harams. One is is increasingly being referred to as a kind of Islamic State West Africa Province to differentiate it. Uh, that's operating around Lake Chad, and then there's this sort of original recipe Boko Haram operating still kind of in uh, eastern northeastern uh, Nigeria and its traditional haunts. Um, the the piece uh, is you know saying mostly that. Uh, In contrast with the way ISIS has sort of operated in Iraq and Syria, uh, the West Africa province uh, has been, you know, working with local communities, kind of ingratiating itself to local communities to build support uh, as opposed to kind of beating people down and, and, you know, subjugating people. And it's had considerable success uh, doing that. Uh, this, I, I want to ask you two things here. One, uh, you know, if you can sort of talk about how uh, ISIS West Africa has been doing. Uh, and two, um, it it seems, this seemed to me as I was reading the piece to be sort of, um, to make sense in that, Like the granddaddy of jihadi extremist groups in West Africa or in that region uh, is still Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. It's not ISIS or anything to do with ISIS. So even a group like this that is explicitly a, a sort of franchise of ISIS still probably has its main roots in aqim and if i'm wrong about that tell me uh but you know is talking so talk about that relationship and talk about you know what where things stand with uh isis west africa i guess
1: sure yeah i mean you know and a lot of this i should say has been like really uh ferociously debated among among analysts you know the extent and, and the meaning of Boko haram's ties to to other, you know, jihadist groups, to to Al-Qaeda and and to ISIS. And and for myself, I've been, you know, on the side of uh, feeling like the ties have always been, you know, extremely loose and weak and that, uh, you know, any external party, even AQIM, has had a lot of difficulty uh, imposing its will on any side of, You know, the different factions of of Boko Haram, Um, and I do see sort of the core drivers of of either faction of Boko Haram as being local. So I guess, I mean, you know, with the piece that you mentioned, I mean, I do, there has been a lot of analysis about how, you know, Al-Qaeda affiliates around the world are embedding themselves in local conflicts and, and are learning to be more kind of flexible in dealing with civilians. Um... And it's quite possible that, you know, ISIS West Africa is, is closely watching what Al-Qaeda is doing and learning from it. But I also think that some of that is just common sense, right? I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, if you are operating in a remote place and have a lot of incentives to, um, you know, have relationships with the civilians around you, it makes sense to be relatively nice to them. Um, and I don't necessarily think that when we see groups doing that, even affiliates of Al-Qaeda, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's because uh, they took that idea from Al-Qaeda Central, or that, or that one affiliate of Al-Qaeda took that from another. I think part of that is just sort of the fabric of how, you know, local politics works. And I think Shakao um, is not only ideologically extreme, he had also taken... Boko Haram to a place where um, things just weren't working at all. You know, they had lost a ton of territory in early 2015 to the militaries of, of Niger and Chad and, and Nigeria. And there's one um, kind of memoir slash tract from from Islamic State West Africa that came out that talks about that period and talks about how they ended up basically in the forest. You know, with fighters eating like roots and leaves and so forth. So I think it's You know, not just that maybe that they've taken inspiration from external jihadists, but also just that they saw that Chicago led them into a real dead end, you know, and saw that they needed to do things differently, and in particular in terms of how they related to civilians.
0: Where do things stand now with um, both, you know, in terms of um, how... ISIS West Africa and sort of the original Boko Haram are are doing you know how how uh, what what their capacity is I mean ISIS West Africa certainly seems to be in a stronger position um, but I, I I also you know have noticed there seems to be um, in at least in a couple of occasions there seems to have been recently. Uh, confusion about which group may have carried out which attack like yeah. there was there was a big one uh in kind of Eastern Nigeria a couple of months ago that sent uh, like 20,000 refugees into Cameroon uh, and, you know, was reported that ISIS West Africa carried out this attack on, you know, the town that uh, displaced all these people. Uh, But then later on, there were reports that maybe actually it was Boko Haram that carried out the attack. Um, You know, is there, is that becoming a problem? And then what is the Nigerian military doing these days? Like the last I heard of them having any strategy uh, for the conflict, for this conflict at all, it was that they were going to retreat to the cities and try to protect the cities and basically give the countryside up. Um, has that changed or are they still uh, operating on that basis? Yeah, I mean, definitely like a
1: lot. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. By the way, but I mean, I think, um, I think that, Couple things. One, one, I think that there was less kind of election disruption than, than analysts were anticipating. I mean, there was a lot of talk in the months leading up to the elections that, you know, Boko Haram and, and Islamic State West Africa were going to really, really try to disrupt the elections. Um, and I don't think that. Turned out to be the case right i mean there were definitely some attacks there was a pre-election incident where where the governor of borno state which is kind of the epicenter of the violence um you know where his convoy was attacked and so forth i mean definitely there was some election violence but it wasn't i think the kind of widespread disruption that you know that that you know certain analysts and journalists have been expecting um there's also by the way you know there's been there's been reports uh, there's a Nigerian journalist named Ahmed Salkida who's, who's long um, had some insider access to, or not insider, I'll say insider, but he's, he's had access to insiders within Boko Haram um, and within Islamic State West Africa. And he was reporting a few weeks ago that um, Abu Musab al-Barnawi had been deposed within Islamic State West Africa and had been replaced by somebody named Idris al-Barnawi. Um, that I still don't regard as confirmed. I'm kind of waiting to see the, you know, the more official kind of statements from the uh, Islamic State central leadership and so forth. You know, but there was, there, you know, some researchers said they had, had access to a recording where where Islamic State West Africa was explaining this and so forth and so. Um, you know, things seem to be shifting within Islamic State, West Africa, and even shifting in, in a more hardline direction, possibly to the point where, you know, some of the distinctions between Islamic State, West Africa, and, and the remnants of Chicago's Boko Haram would start to get blurred. Um, some of if there has been this leadership change, if it is confirmed, some of it seems to have to do with continued fallout from uh, how... Islamic State West Africa leaders managed the, the kidnapping of, of girls in Dapji, Nigeria in, in 2018. Um, and there seems to have been uh, significant flaws of, of the fighters who felt that um, the leadership had acted too, uh, in, in too conciliatory of a fashion in, in negotiating with the Nigerian state over the release of those girls. Um, so it is definitely, you know, looking from some indications like Islamic State, West Africa might be moving in a more hardline direction, which could change the conflict. And then, yeah, like you said, there's these kind of rumors of, of you know, unclear responsibility or, or even rumors of the two factions working together. Um, for myself, I don't see them sort of, like, getting back together anytime soon, but it's definitely possible. Um, and, yeah, with the military, I mean, I think I think my impression is still what you said, that that there's basically this... Um, you know, partial feeding of the countryside. I mean, not completely, and and in fact, I think Islamic State West Africa has really, you know, profited from its ability to kind of overrun rural garrisons and to take the weapons and and to scare the soldiers away and so forth. Um, But, yeah, I do think that, on the whole, the the civilians and the military, you know, seem to be... uh, pretty reluctant to try to take control of the countryside in a meaningful way.
0: Well, that's, that's always a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Uh,
1: I'd say too, I mean, uh, you know, theoretically, now that, now that the, now that the election season is over, you know, now all the the gubernatorial elections are concluded, you know, so theoretically the, the political class, including Buhari, should be able to turn their attention back to all these security issues. Um but that's not necessarily what will happen
0: Uh, well and on on that that cheery note I think we'll uh, we'll leave things there um alex thurston thank you again for being on the show uh if you want to read uh i'll have links to your books as always in the the show description and uh if you want to keep uh on top of what's happening in the sahel uh alex has a blog sahelblog.wordpress.com i'll link to that also in the show description and uh i'll link to your twitter uh which You know, Twitter is a cesspool, but what can Ah. you do? Uh, (laughs) Well, thanks again so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Sure, thank you. By way of housekeeping, uh, before we conclude this week's episode, I know a number of people have asked uh, about an RSS feed for this podcast. Uh, this is something that Substack has, is still working on. Uh, they do have a, an RSS feed for public episodes, that is, you know, episodes that are unlocked for everybody. Uh, and I will try to provide you guys with that. They've already, I think, submitted it, to Apple you know for uh, sort of the Apple podcast app uh, but I'm not sure how long that process takes I'll try to get the the feed so you can just plug it into your uh, your favorite podcast app uh, they're still working on uh, a private feed uh, for subscribers for subscriber only episodes uh, that should be ready pretty soon and um you'll be able to get all the episodes of the the podcast the the public and private you won't need uh, two rss feeds is what i'm saying uh, you'll just need the private one if you're a subscriber um so for now like i said i'll try to get you guys the the public rss feed uh and stay tuned for the the private one hopefully it'll be ready um you know i plan to start doing subscriber episodes uh, next week, so hopefully it'll be ready, if not next week, then soon after that. Uh, And, you know, as I bring podcasts over older podcasts over from uh from patreon hopefully uh yeah we'll get that that up and running uh, as soon as possible but again i know you've, you've asked about it and uh i'm you know in touch with substack and and i think they're they're working as fast as they can uh so it, it's it will be taken care of uh as soon as possible that's that's the best i can can tell you at this point All right. Uh, I want to thank Alex Thurston again for coming on uh, and getting us up to speed on what's happening in the Sahel. Uh, His blog, again, is sahelblog.wordpress.com. You can find Alex on Twitter at at Sahelblog. As I said, I will link to all of these things in the show description. Uh, And um, I will talk to you guys next week. We should, I guess, I think, barring any unforeseen circumstances, get back into talking about the Iranian revolution of 1979. Uh, Until then, as always, uh, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye.